Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew 6, Matthew chapter 6. We'll be looking at an extended portion of Scripture in that chapter, so we want everybody to be able to follow along in the Bible as we do. These brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back. If you need one, get their attention so that you can look with us at our Lord's words in Matthew 6. I recently read the spiritual journey of a man who's now a pastor in Virginia, but he grew up in a thoroughly non-Christian home. And he says that God used the influence of a Christian high school classmate to bring him to a relationship with the Lord. This pastor tells the story of going to church with his friend for the first time, and in their youth group meeting that Sunday, he says, the youth leader asked us this question. Psychologists say that a person's ethics, personality, and character are set in stone by age seven. Do you agree with that? He says, I thought it sounded reasonable enough, but then he told us that Christians believe in a God that can reach down into the world and change a person at any point in their life. This absolutely floored me. I knew that Christians believed in God, but I'd always imagined that they believed him in him as some form of deism. And just by word of explanation, that's belief in just a God who got the ball of the universe rolling but is now kind of hands off as he sits back and watches what happens. He goes on to say, It had never dawned on me that these people believe that God is active in the world and could even be active in my own heart. I had never heard anything that outrageous before, and I really didn't know what to make of it. Later that day in the worship service, this teenager came to faith in Jesus Christ as his Savior. And as I said, he's now a pastor. And the thing that captured his attention was a God with whom we could interact and who was active in our lives, personally active in our lives. Now, for those of us who have been in a Christian environment for years, perhaps even our entire lives, there's so many things, friends, that we take for granted, don't we? And as the familiar becomes routine and the routine becomes mindless, we can simply go through the motions without thinking about what it is that we're doing and how absolutely mind-blowing it is that we can have a personal relationship with the God of the universe, interacting with Him, and He with us every moment of our lives. Our non-Christian culture does not believe this. Even if many say that they believe it on paper, they do not believe it in practice. That God is a person with whom we interact person to person. And perhaps nowhere is our belief in God and the type of God, small g, that we believe in, perhaps nowhere is that tested more than in how we pray to this God. Last week in our series on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught on how we're to carry out our religious duties, things like giving and things like praying and fasting. And he said those are to be carried out in a God-centered rather than self-centered manner. And Jesus give those, gives those instructions in verses 1 through 18 of chapter 6. But as he taught on prayer, he took some time to elaborate on what true prayer should look like, saying this in verse 8. 
Do not be like them when you pray. Do not be like them. The them is the hypocrites and unbelievers. He says, do not be like them because the way they pray shows they do not believe in God as he truly is. Jesus says, do not be like them because when they pray, it's as though God is insignificant in their prayers. Verse 5. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Notice the objective is to be seen by others. God is a bit player. He's insignificant. The way they pray not only reveals belief in a a God who is insignificant, they also pray, Jesus tells us, as if God is impersonal. Verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans. For they think they will be heard because of their many words. It's as if God, in their minds, is a kind of cosmic slot machine. If you keep pulling the same lever, you're bound to hit the jackpot. Impersonal God. Unbelieving prayer is to a God who is insignificant and impersonal. And Jesus says they also conceive of him as ignorant. Verse 8. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. Well, you may be asking, well, then why ask God if he already knows? Bingham Hunter wrote a helpful book many years ago called The God Who Hears. And in that book, he posed that question. Why pray to a God who knows everything? And he gives the answer. Why would you want to pray to a God who doesn't? It's only a God who knows everything. Who knows then what is in your best interest and then how to act accordingly? And seeing a God, again, small g, who is insignificant and impersonal and ignorant are just some of the beliefs that are exposed in the way we pray. Now notice, friends, I said in the way we pray. Because Jesus said, don't be like them, the hypocrites and the unbelievers. But he was saying that to his followers. And in fact, in verse 1 of chapter 6, Jesus said, Be careful that you do not behave like those who do not truly believe in him as he is. And I quoted for you last week one pastor who said, Every misconception about God, or excuse me, every misconception about prayer is first a misconception about God. Now please note as well, that what follows in the verses that we're now going to look at beginning in verse 9 is not technically what we normally call the Lord's Prayer. You see, it's not a prayer that the Lord himself prayed. It's an example of prayer for us. The truth is, Jesus couldn't pray this prayer because in verse 12 it says, forgive us our debts, that is, forgive us our sins. And of course, Jesus had no sins that needed to be forgiven. So Jesus could never pray this prayer himself. It's a prayer for us. And the Lord is not content, as we've just seen, to tell us in verses 5 through 8 how we're not to pray, but he proceeds to tell us how to pray. And in verse 9, Jesus says, This, then, is how you should pray. And please note that Jesus is telling us how we should pray, not particularly what we should pray. That is, this prayer is given as an example, not a script to recite. 
It's okay to recite this prayer, but it's more important to understand the model of prayer that Jesus has provided and then translate that into our own personalized prayer. And so let's now go to the Lord and ask for His aid during our time together. Our Father, You are the one who is high and lifted up. And we are amazed that we can call you our Father. We've gathered, Lord, to give you what you deserve, our praise and devotion. But we acknowledge that apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we ask you to give us what we need this hour. So that we can see ourselves as we are and you as you are. And that we will thereby be changed to better reflect you in the way we think and in the way we talk and in the way we act. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Rather than praying, Jesus is now going to tell us in verses 9 through 13, rather than praying as though God were insignificant or impersonal or ignorant, here is how Jesus says his followers should pray. And we have an outline inserted for you in your program, so I encourage you to take that out. Jesus gives us three major things that we should do in this model prayer. The first is this. We should talk to the Father appropriately. We should talk to the Father appropriately. Jesus says in verse 9, we can address God as our Father. Now please notice something that we could easily skip over in that. Jesus says, our Father, not just my Father. And this is because when you call God your Father, you need to be reminded of His other children. He is our Father. We call God Father because we're part of something larger than ourselves. That is, the family of God. And John, the apostle, who was constantly amazed at this truth of the family of God and that we are the children of God, says in 1 John chapter 5, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves his children as well. Now, it's okay to pray, my Father, from time to time, but we need to always remember that we, friends, are not lone rangers in following Jesus. And we need to have constantly before us that our purpose is bigger than our individual lives. That's why I need to regularly say and regularly be reminded, our Father and we are together pursuing His glory and His plan and His purpose on earth. I should have a perspective that goes beyond my immediate issues and connects to the plan of God that includes the family of God and His church of which I'm a part. Now, when Jesus says to call God our Father, we probably don't recognize just how radical that was for His listeners to hear. The Jews of this period used exalted titles for God, Sovereign Lord, king of the universe, and the like. These are all fine, but that was their customary way of addressing God. But Jesus is telling us that we can address God the same way that he does. And we see in the Gospels, in your New Testament, the life and ministry of Jesus, how it was that Jesus addressed the Lord. In Matthew 11, Jesus says, I praise you, Father. Jesus' relationship to the Father was one of openness such that he could even make requests and yet make those requests in the context of submission as God the Son to God the Father. We see that in 
Matthew 26, as he is about to fulfill his purpose to die on the cross for our sins. And he says, My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And his relationship to the Father is so close that he can urge the Father to take particular action. We see that again as he's hanging on the cross. And he says these famous words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And then the prayer that Jesus did actually pray, remember this is a model prayer for his followers, for us to model our prayers on. But in the prayer that Jesus did pray on the night before he died in John 17, he spoke of the unique relationship that he has with the Father when he said these words, Father, the hour has come. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. But here Jesus is with this unique relationship to the Father, one that goes into eternity past. And he is saying, you can call God the same thing I call him, our Father. We should talk to the Father appropriately, and that appropriate address to the Father means a couple of things. I say in your outline, we should talk to the Father affectionately. We should talk to the Father affectionately. I quoted earlier Jesus on the cross asking the Father to let this cup of death pass from him if it be possible. Here's a fuller version of what Jesus said. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now the reason Abba is there is for this reason Jesus spoke Aramaic. And the Aramaic word for father is Abba. And that word Abba is a term of intimacy, of of affection. These are the simple syllables that a child learns very early on, and you hear in words like Dada or Mama or Papa. It's the natural utterance of one who belongs to and is familiar with the one with whom they have a relationship. Now, for Jesus to call God his Father is one thing. Since, as we've seen, he's the unique Son of God. He is God the Son, who has from eternity enjoyed the most intimate of relationships with the Father. He's the Son of God in a unique way, and therefore he calls God his Abba. But he teaches us here to refer to God in the same way. Think about that, friends, that we can approach God the same way that God the Son approaches him. And this is because the Bible says this of us. Romans 8. The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, by that spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. Those who can truly call God their father are those who have experienced what the Bible calls being born again. We need to be born again, reborn spiritually, because here's what the Bible says about our natural birth. We were, by nature, children of wrath. But God doesn't leave us in that alienated condition outside of his family. But God, through the work of Jesus Christ, moves his spirit to work on our hearts so that he draws us out of the world and to himself so that we are then part of God's family, born again, born into the family of God, adopted into his family. And then 
That having happened, we inherit the splendors of heaven, the Bible says, as heirs and co-heirs with Christ. And that's why at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, after Jesus has died on the cross, after he has risen from the dead, he shows himself alive. And on one occasion, he says to one of his followers in John 20, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. That equivalence that Jesus makes between his Father and our Father, his God and our God, ought to be absolutely stunning and life-changing for us. And friends, the, the fatherhood of God is reserved for followers of Jesus. There is a sense in which, and many of you have heard this, perhaps some of you have said this, God is the father of all, or that we are all God's children, or something to that effect. And in fact, there's a sense in which that is true. Speaking to unbelievers in Athens, Greece, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul said this, We, and he's including himself and them, we are God's offspring. So we are all God's offspring in the sense that we were all created by God. God is the source of all living. And Paul goes on to say in that address that it is in him that we live and move and have our being. So God is our Father in that sense, but God is not our Father in the sense that we are in the family of God and adopted as His children unless and until we bow our hearts and our wills before the Savior and Lord Jesus Christ and are born again. It's when one one comes to God through believing in Jesus Christ, who He is and what He did for us that we're adopted into God's family. And when that happens, it's an amazing status indeed that we now have. Amazing change of position, once alienated from God and children of wrath, and now the prized children of God in his family. The same John that I quoted earlier and who I said was often amazed at this truth, said in 1 John chapter 3, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And then he says, it's like as he's writing it, that we should be called the children of God. And that's what we are, the children of God. He's amazed at this truth. We've seen the contrast between those in the family and those outside the family, and we see that again in this very same passage because the last part of that verse, John goes on to say, the reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Do you see, friends, there are some people who are in the family of God and some who are not. And it is those who have been born again born into the family of God, adopted into his family by his spirit, who cry out, Abba, Father, and then who can say, as Jesus says in this model prayer, Our Father. And as in any healthy family, God disciplines his sons and daughters, but he disciplines, the Bible tells us, for the purpose of holiness. Hebrews chapter 12 says this, God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. So we come to God when we pray and we are able to say, blessedly, our Father. We're to address the Father appropriately. That means affectionately. It means as well in your outline. We should talk to the Father reverently. We should talk to the Father affectionately, but we should talk to Him as well reverently. 
Lest we take this truth that God is our Father and we become flippant in our approach to Him, Jesus adds that we should approach Him, yes, as our Father, but in verse 9 He says, Our Father in heaven. Friends, we need to remember that although God is our Father, our Abba, He is still high and exalted and He sits on the throne of the universe and we should approach Him with both in mind. I'm afraid that today's church takes a very casual approach to God. God is just like a big relative in the sky. Or we use the same kinds of terms for Him that we use of our favorite athlete or celebrity. God, you rock. God, you are awesome. Set in the same tone as if we're talking about Calvin Johnson making a great catch, or Taylor Swift, or whoever. Now, awesome is a good word for God, so it's not the word itself. It's the casual tone with which we refer to God. I quoted earlier Jesus saying, I praise you, Father, but here's the complete version of what he said in that verse in Matthew 11. I praise you, Father, and then notice, Lord of heaven and earth. And so very far from the kind of adolescent, casual God's rad, he's my dad. That kind of approach that so many in today's church take. Or, on the other extreme, the holy other, completely distant approach of the liturgical church. Jesus, in this one line, our Father in heaven, captures both the transcendence of God above all and the eminence of our God who has come to be with and to save his people. After telling us how we can address God, Jesus provides six model requests, six petitions that can always be brought before God in prayer. And those six requests we're going to see fall into two categories. The first of those two categories is the second major point in your outline. We should talk to the Father appropriately, and we should talk to the Father, Jesus says, about the Father. We should talk to the Father about the Father. Far from being impersonal, we can address God as our Father, and now, far from being insignificant, as the pagans and the hypocrites taught, we first address God about Him and His concerns and what He deserves and He desires. The first three of these six requests in Jesus' model prayer are about God. And the first request is at the end of verse 9. Hallowed be your name. That's a request. In praying that, we are saying, Lord, I want your name to be hallowed. Now, what does that mean? It means, as I say in the outline, that we should ask that his character be displayed. Now, why do I say that? Here's why. Because the word hallowed is the word that's translated elsewhere in your New Testament, holy. Hallowed means to be made holy, to be set apart, to be revered. It's used, for example, in 1 Peter chapter 3, where Peter says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In your hearts, hallow Christ as Lord. In your hearts, set apart, some translations say, Christ as Lord. In your hearts, Christ is to be the holy one, the different one, the set apart one. So when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, it's a request 
that his name be set apart, be different from all those in the universe, that it be revered. When Jesus says, hallowed be your name, set apart, holy be your name, he's not referring to the letters G-O-D or any other name for God, although we are not to use the name of the Lord your God in vain. But rather, in Scripture, the name has to do with character. And that's why I say in that point, we should ask that his character be displayed. Jesus is saying that we should pray that God's character, his holiness, be revered and honored and modeled by all people. We pray to the Father first about the Father. And we say, Lord, I want your character to be made holy among your creation. Now, in order for me to say that, in order for you to say that, I want your character to be set apart and revered and honored by all of your creatures. In order for any of us to say that, we have to desire to do that ourselves. I can't say, may your name be made holy while I pursue unholiness. It means if I'm going to pray this, that I have to abhor that which is not holy. Friends, I just ask you whether or not the water that is the cesspool of the world has become very warm to you. I wonder if you've gone from dipping your toe to your entire body. And now we can't tell the difference. We so easily become desensitized to the unholiness that is all around us. In my 52 years, the culture of America has changed radically. My father died when I was 11. And in the 41 years since, I've often thought if my dad somehow were able to come back, which he would not want to do. <laughs> He's much better off than we. But if he were to come back just for a few days, he would not recognize the place. And so I'm warning you as I warn myself. Jesus says pray this way because these are the things that are priorities for us. And so we pray first of all about the things the Father cares about. And He cares about His reputation, His character being displayed in His world. But that can't happen if we're inured, if we're desensitized to the unholiness of the world. As we talk to the Father about the Father, we should ask that His character be displayed in His world by His people. And I say in your outline as well, we should ask that His kingdom be established. Verse 10, your kingdom come. Throughout the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, prediction is made of a kingdom, a kingdom of complete transformation of the earth and of its inhabitants, ruled over by the anointed one of God that we know to be Jesus Christ. That kingdom is yet future. And yet, Jesus has now already defeated death, accomplished his work and now has been given the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is already king, but his kingdom is not yet. Many of you have heard theologians say that there is a sense in which it's already and not yet. And I would simply say to you as you read your Bible, 
it is much more not yet than already. The kingdom is yet to come. And the kingdom is something to which we aspire and to which we look forward and for which we pray. If it's already here, oh my. As some, believe it or not, teach. Yikes. If the kingdom was already here, uh, the apostles didn't get the memo. Now here's how I know. They didn't get the memo. Because Jesus accomplished his earthly work. He... He died on the cross, he raised, he showed himself alive, and he ascended to the Father. And just before Jesus ascends to the Father, after all of that, after they have spent three years, intimate years with Jesus teaching about the kingdom, this is what Acts chapter 1 says, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? You see, they're still looking for this. And Jesus didn't say, well, didn't you guys get the memo? The kingdom's already here. Jesus says to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by His own authority. The kingdom is future. To pray your kingdom come requires a holy dissatisfaction with the world. God's people throughout all ages, because they are called out of the world and to God, because of that, their status in this world is one of aliens and strangers who look forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. And that's why you find a term, Maranatha, in your New Testament. At the end of his letter to the Corinthian church, in 1 Corinthians 16, Paul says, Maranatha, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Now, what does that term mean? It means come. And then we find that very phrase again in the end of the Bible, the second to the last verse of the Word of God in Revelation chapter 22. John ends the Word of God this way, Come, Lord Jesus. It's the heart's cry of God's people. Come, Lord Jesus. We will endure for as long as you have for us. And you will sustain us as you have in the past. But, oh, Lord, our hearts so ache for the time when you are on your throne on this earth and you are ruling this earth that you made by people who are glad to bow before your reign. We long for God's reign. Jesus is king. He's on the throne, but he's going to be on a throne in Jerusalem, the Bible says, in a coming day. And we long for his reign at a time when it will be in the context of relatively no opposition. You know, today he's opposed everywhere. Today Christians are opposed everywhere. Today Christ is opposed everywhere. But that will be a time of relative non-opposition. Now, why do you say relative non-opposition? I don't have time to get into it, but the Bible actually says for the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year kingdom that will come, there will actually be some people there who will go in in their natural bodies and they'll seek to make a ruckus. And Jesus will stamp them out. It shows you how heinous sin actually is. You have God himself sitting on a throne in Jerusalem and people still rebel against him. We long for a time of God's reign in the context of no opposition. So we should ask that his kingdom be established. And thirdly, we should ask that his desires be accomplished. That his desires be accomplished. 
Verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you have read through your your Bible, just a cursory reading, you know that God's will, sometimes translated God's desire in Scripture, is used in two ways. There is God's decreed will. There is everything that God has willed will come to pass. And then there is God's moral will. Everything good, bad, and ugly that comes to pass, God is in control of as a sovereign God who has decreed that. But that does not mean that everything that comes to pass is pleasing to God, far from it. Many things that come to pass are violations of God's moral will, what the Bible calls the call sin. And here when we say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we are saying, Lord, when your sovereign will occurs, good, bad, and ugly, we will be content. And we are saying that we desire that your moral will be carried out by your creatures in ever-increasing numbers and in ever-increasing ways. Now, you cannot pray this, your will be done. Hear this, you can't pray this if you're discontent with your life right now. Do you get that? Why? Because you're living in God's will. And for you to, on the one hand, say, Lord, your will be done, but to be discontent and to be sinfully discontent, you are saying that you don't know what you're doing with your will, God. I can't pray your will be done. (laughs) I mean, apparently it is, and it ain't working out. So it needs to be different in order for me to obey you with the kinds of words and actions and attitude that you tell me in your word to carry out. Now I could go on about that, but that hits all of us in our discontent. That discontented relationship, that discontented job, that discontented circumstance, relationship, whatever it be. We should talk to the Father about the Father. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And then we should talk to the Father about the family. We talk to the Father about the Father and then about the family. Now remember, I said that the pagans, the unbelievers, the hypocrites, they pray as if God is insignificant. But far from being insignificant, God here is, Jesus here is prioritizing the concerns of the Father. He's not only not insignificant, he's the most significant. And when we pray to him, we pray to him about him and about the stuff he cares about first and foremost. But then Jesus does bid us come to the Father about the family. And he gives us two categories of things that we can ask for. We should ask for physical matters. We should ask for physical matters. In verse 11, give us today our daily bread. And when Jesus says, you you come to the Father, you pray about the family, you pray about our daily bread, remember us, not just me, but our daily bread. And when you do that, you are recognizing your absolute dependence on God for the very necessities of life. That's why he uses bread here. For the very staples of life. This was stated in an agrarian culture where it was very clear to them that they could be wiped out with one bad harvest. And see, that's not clear to us. We're far removed from that. Very few, if any, farmers in this room now. 
And so our stuff is, is grown and, and processed and shipped and brought to us and put on shelves that we go and fetch, and we don't think about all that went into that. But they were very directly related to where that came from and how that could be destroyed in, as I say, one bad harvest. They understood that in ways we forget. Dear friends, everything you have, every last thing you have, you're dependent on God for it. That's why James said in James 1, every good gift is from above, coming from the Father. And so when I pray to God about my physical needs, Jesus says, give us our daily bread. And notice he says, give us today our daily bread. That is, give us enough for the day. Yes, we pray to the Father about we pray to the Father about physical matters, and Jesus bids us to do that, showing our dependence on Him for all things that we receive. But He doesn't say, come and pray about the next 10 years or about the next 20 years. Jesus says, pray about today. Ask God to sustain you today. Now listen, some of you are sitting here right now, and you are discontented and worried and anxious about tomorrow, next week, and 10 years from now. And yet here you sit... Thanks be to God, because a good God has sustained you. And rather than expressing your discontent with what I have today by complaining and asking and pleading for things that haven't even happened yet, we're asking for things to happen in the future, and we don't even know what's going to happen in the future. So Jesus says, give us today our daily bread. And then lastly, we should ask God, not only for physical matters, but for spiritual matters. Verses 12 and 13, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is a sixth, or excuse me, a fifth and sixth request in this model prayer from Jesus. In verse 12, it's about forgiveness of our debts. Debts is a synonym in Scripture for sin. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us, is what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm not going to spend time on that right now because next week we will spend the entire hour, 9.30 worship hour, in the observance of the Lord's table, communion. And the entirety of the message surrounding that is going to be on verses 14 and 15 in Matthew 6, where Jesus elaborates on forgiveness in verses 14 and 15. Now, I just want you to see this for now, that in this model prayer, Jesus gives six petitions. The fifth of those six petitions is about forgiving, and of the six that he gives in this list, he elaborates on exactly one, and it's forgiveness. Now you think about then how important this issue of forgiveness is. Forgiveness that we need from God, but Jesus says in verses 14 and 15, forgiveness that we extend to others. So we're going to spend the entire hour next week looking at that issue from verses 14 and 15. The sixth request, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Some of you are aware that James chapter 1 says, that God does not tempt anyone with evil. So why is Jesus here saying we should pray, lead us not into temptation? 
This is a way of saying it's written as what is called a litotes. I don't expect you to remember that or care about that. But it's written in a way that you say something in a negative form to make a positive request. And so when he says, lead us not into temptation, it's a way of saying, lead us into righteousness. And it's a reminder that we are all absolutely spiritually weak and spiritually vulnerable. And our sovereign God controls the circumstances of our lives. And we must ask God, oh Lord, do not place me in circumstances where my spiritual vulnerability will be exposed. Lead me into righteousness. Now, what's our take-home truth then with that? How we talk to God shows what we think of Him. Now, given Jesus' model prayer, compare that to your prayers, my prayers. And do we put God's interests first when we approach God? And when we pray to God, do we simply have a laundry list of all the stuff that we have going on as if God is ignorant of what's happening in our lives? And that laundry list includes not just for today, but for next week and what might happen and all my worries with that? Or do I come, as Jesus says, and show a mature view of the true and living God? A God-centered prayer that placed His interests first, and then I come to Him asking about the family, but doing so humbly with my physical requests and knowing my spiritual vulnerability with my spiritual requests. Now, this is a prayer for only those who are in the family of God. And friends, it would be a tragedy for anyone to walk out of this room today outside of the family of God. So how can you become a part of the family of God? We're going to bow and pray in just a moment. And when we do, we have on the screen for you that you need to do this. You need to realize that you are a sinner. There's only one sinless person who has ever lived. God the Son came to earth sinless, lived a sinless life, lived the life that you should have lived, that I should have lived. He died the death that we deserved. Recognize then that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And having paid that penalty, when that is applied to you now, you can be welcomed into God's family. You repent of your sins. God, I want to follow you with my life and no longer go my own way. And you receive Jesus Christ in your life for the sincere asking from your heart to God. Lord, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus died for me. He is my Lord, and I give my life to you. In your own words to God, you say that to him. And you become born again, and you become adopted into his family, and he begins to change you from the inside out. Let's bow together. Father, thank you that we can call you our Father. We believe and we know that we can only call you Father because you have done the work of bringing those of us who were alienated from you outside of the family of God into your family. Lord, this is not anything we deserve. It is certainly not anything that we could do. And therefore, our relationship with you is not based upon our goodness. It's not based upon our works. It's not based upon our baptism, the particular religion that we have been a part of. It is based solely and completely on the grace of our God given to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that your word promises that he who calls on the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved, will be delivered. Oh, Lord, move on the hearts of some in this room right now who for the very first time are hearing the good news of the fatherhood of God for those that are adopted into your family. 
We pray that you will draw them out of the world and to yourself. And those of us for whom you have done that, oh Lord, help us to examine what we think of you by the way we pray to you. May we please you in our lives and with our lips when we pray. It's in Jesus' name that we do pray. Amen.